In my 19 years as a therapist, I have failed my clients in a million different ways. I have failed to pay attention. I have failed to notice something. I have failed to be compassionate. I have failed to meet my ethical responsibilities. There have been so many failures. But the most egregious failure of all is my failure to recognize my failures. If we as therapists refuse to acknowledge our failures, then that is the most destructive failure of all. So in this episode, I plan on reviewing all my failures as a learning exercise. But first, let me introduce the podcast. Welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your loyal host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am chair of the Couple and Family Therapy Program at Antioch University, Seattle, and I'm also a licensed marriage and family therapist. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast, so if you're listening to this and you're not a patron of the podcast, this episode will end before the content begins. If you want to hear the full episode, you have to become a patron of the podcast at patreon.com. Patrons of the podcast get access to exclusive episodes like this one, along with other various benefits and swag. And 20% of your monthly pledge goes toward various charities that we support. So again, if you haven't already, go to patreon.com and become a patron of our humble little podcast to, to get access to this episode. And for now, exclusive episodes are viewable only on patreon.com, but soon there will be a way to get these exclusive episodes to your phone via podcast applications like Downcast and Overcast and all those kinds of things. All right. Hello, patrons. Love you so much for becoming patrons. We have 69 patrons so far. 69. And we are hoping to get a lot more. So if uh, you know of other people that you think would be good patrons for the podcast, please turn them on to the podcast and tell them to become a patron. So before moving forward, I just want to have a few caveats. The first is that I don't particularly like the word failure. Some of you are probably already reacting to that. You know, failure is a very strong word. It's very negative. But I think that it is important sometimes to just say that. It's, it's a failure and just to acknowledge that. It's okay. I'm not beating myself up. And I don't want other people to beat themselves up. I don't want other people to say, I'm a failure. I'm a terrible person. Uh, I'm saying it as a way of just highlighting how I have failed, how I have um, screwed up in some way. And it's okay to say that. It doesn't mean that I'm a bad person. It doesn't mean that I'm going to cry myself to sleep tonight. It just means that I failed. I didn't, I didn't meet what I wanted to do. <laughs> and I pulled all of these failures from my own failures and from also reading other therapists, writing, the writing of other therapists. I've reviewed a lot of research on failures. I've taken a lot of courses on therapy. I've contemplated quite a bit my own, my own life. I've listened to others. I've worked with supervisors. I've been supervised and learned about how therapists fail. I've taught a lot of courses in marriage and family therapy for the past 18 years, and therapy failures is a part of my curriculum. And I've worked with supervisees for the past 15 years. I've been supervising therapists for the past 15 years, and I can tell you that I see a lot of the same sorts of failures over and over again. And so this, this review is based on all that experience. Also, another caveat is that some of these failures are big issues and some are small issues. Some of the failures we would say would be to be terrible failures and things to be highly avoided. And some failures happen on a regular basis or they're not that big of a deal. 
Also, some of the failures that I'm going to be talking about are merely my opinion, and other failures are standards in the profession. So know that some of the things I'm going to talk about are pretty universal in my profession, and some are particular to me and other therapists like me. And along those lines, many of these failures have to do with my style of therapy and that they don't apply to all therapists by any means. I would say a good third to a half of the failures I'm going to talk about have to do with my style of therapy. All right, let's get into it. So the first failure I'd like to talk about that I have suffered from is overdiagnosing people. When I first started out as a therapist, particularly when I was in graduate school and I was learning psychopathology and how to diagnose, I tended to diagnose people too much. One, I didn't really understand the nature of diagnosing, and I also didn't understand people well enough to assess them accurately, in my opinion. And I also was someone with a new toy. I had a new toy, and I wanted to use it a lot, and whenever I was tasked with diagnosing someone, I tended to err on the side of over-diagnosing than under-diagnosing. And so that, that's a failure that some therapists will do. Another failure is overemphasizing diagnosing itself. For instance, when someone is suffering from depression, that is important to understand and to assess and to monitor and possibly treat. But it might not be the primary issue. For instance, if someone comes in and says, I'm depressed, um, the real issue might be, among a million other things, it might be loneliness. The person might be suffering from, from a lack of purpose in their life. And therefore, you might determine that the, focusing on the depression is not actually the best thing to do. The, the best thing for the client to do is to focus on the loneliness. And there is no loneliness diagnosis in the DSM. And so you're not focusing on the DSM diagnosis. You're focusing on some other issue. And as a result, you will be treating the depression. For instance, if you lower someone's loneliness, it might lead to lowering the depression. Whereas if you just focus on the depression and focus on symptom reduction, you might miss the main point. So that's the second failure is overemphasizing DSM diagnoses themselves. The third failure that I've suffered from is not having a main hypothesis, and I suffered from this much more in the beginning of my career. I'm realizing a lot of these failures are probably mainly early career, but I probably suffer from them now too. And this one drives me crazy because to not have a main hypothesis as a therapist with your clients is akin to a physician providing treatment without knowing what they're treating. So you come in to the, you know, a physician's office and you tell them your symptoms and the physician just provides treatment that's completely divorced from any hypothesis as to what's wrong with you. And that's the same with, with therapy. When someone comes in, you need to have an hypothesis about what the problem is and that, that's what drives treatment and that's what justifies treatment. And for you to provide treatment to a client without having a main hypothesis is is unethical and a problem. So it's important to, to have a main hypothesis. Now, when, when I say this, sometimes people say, well, basically what you're asking for is for me to change my style of therapy because I'm not a concrete therapist. I'm, I'm more humanistic. I like to help people with their self-esteem and this sort of thing and, and finding their authentic self. 
Well, that constitutes an hypothesis. Of course, hypotheses are easy when it comes to CBT, like the hypothesis is that this person's cognitions are problematic and we need to change them to reduce anxiety or depression. But if someone is coming in, for instance, with loneliness, an hypothesis is that their loneliness is what's leading to their depression and therefore finding purpose in life, finding connection with other people, having proper attachments is an hypothesis about what the problem is and guides your treatment. It could be even something like self-esteem or something along these lines. So it doesn't have to be super concrete, but you need to at least have an idea about why you're treating someone. Even postmodern folks, solution-focused people, they would sometimes claim that they don't use hypotheses because that requires the therapist to diagnose and to interpret and this sort of thing. But I would argue that postmodern people, solution-focused people, they also will have an hypothesis. For instance, if the client comes in, saying I'm depressed and I have this problem in my life with my relationships. And the solution-focused person says, well, let's, let's talk about solutions. You know, when, when did things go well for you? Let's, let's sort of build on that. The hypothesis is that problem talk leads to problems. And the hypothesis is that if they speak from a place of strength and a place of hope and a place of moving towards solutions, that things will work out for them. So that, that constitutes an hypothesis, and therefore you need to be able to articulate that. A lot of therapists will operate from hypotheses, but they won't be able to articulate it. And that's a problem because, again, it's akin to walking into a physician's office and they you know, prescribe you medication. And when you ask why, the physician says, well, I just do this with everybody, regardless of what symptoms they come in with. Or it's what my gut tells me to do is to give you these, these medications. You, know, you need theory behind what you're doing. You need an idea about why you're doing what you're doing. The fourth failure as a therapist is believing in people. Uh, I certainly suffer from this off and on. And it's particularly difficult when therapists are treating a group that they don't like. You know, they're atheists and they're treating a Christian or they're Republicans and they're treating a liberal or something. It's, it's hard sometimes to believe in people that we can't identify with or people that we dislike outside of the therapy office. And so it's important to believe in people, that they can accomplish great things, that anyone can change, that there's hope around every corner, and, and to not give up on clients. It's important to believe in people. And I, I suffer from this sometimes, absolutely, and, and, and when I see it in other people, it really aggravates me. When I see other clinicians talking about their clients as if they're doomed is, is very disheartening to me and upsetting to me. And I feel for the clients because if they knew that their therapist had no hope in them, then that would be quite a sad thing, right? The fifth failure that I have uh, suffered from is helping, uh, not helping clients to self-disclose or to feel safe to self-disclose. It might sound funny, but for some clients, for many clients, they don't feel safe to talk about things that they're sensitive about. And that sounds ridiculous because isn't that what therapy is all about? It's supposed to be a place where people feel safe to talk about things that they couldn't tell other people. But when you ask the average client, they will say that there are things that they hold back from telling the therapist for fear of judgment or something. And it's the therapist's job to try to create a space for clients to feel safe enough to say whatever they want to say. And that requires a lot of work. It requires a lot of authenticity. It requires a lot of relationship building. And I have failed in that way at times with my clients by not paying enough attention to that. The sixth failure is not considering testing or measuring. For instance, 
there are some measures like the BDI or the Beck Depression Inventory that measures depressive symptoms. It's important to integrate these into your psychotherapy practice as a way of monitoring certain issues. Now, the measure isn't the only thing you look at. You interview and you get a sense for what the person's saying. In addition to using these measures as a numerical way of monitoring how things are going, it can really help. And I, I've used them sometimes, but I could probably use them more, and they could probably help. Also, there are some assessment measures that are very, very uh, good at capturing things that often don't come up in therapy, like th the quality of life inventory. I think it's called the QLI. And it assesses all these different domains in someone's life, like their love life, their work life, their creative life, their job, their health, their playfulness. It, it assesses all those things really quickly. It just asks them to rate how satisfied they are in, in these areas of their, of their life. And you can get a pretty quick little picture of all these different domains. And you might not know to ask those questions, or it might take a long time to ask those questions. And so some measures are, are really great. And I think the reasons why some therapists don't do it is because it requires more time. The test costs money. Sometimes therapists aren't qualified or they're not educated in using testing. And so it uh, but I think it can be used to, f for the benefit of the client. The seventh failure is having a bad office. And I've certainly done this in the past. When I was in my earlier career, it was harder for me to, one, afford a good office and to know how to design a good office, I guess. But anyway, uh, different things that go into failing in terms of your therapy office is having an office that's really barren, like a prison cell. And this is all personal preference, so it really just depends on, on what you're going for. But I've seen some therapy offices that look like prison cells, and when I ask the therapist, I say, so are you going for the prison cell look or what? And they will say, oh, I just haven't had time to decorate, or I just – you know, I, I, I don't know who cares about that sort of thing. And I, and I think, well, I think some clients might care. So it's not a matter of creating like this super nice place, but you should have, you know, some decor that makes clients feel comfortable in your office. So that's something. Also, having a noisy office. An office where a lot of noise bleeds in from like the street out from on the outside. I, I had a therapist once that was in an office that was right on a really busy street, and it was very distracting to hear the trucks go by. Another failure in terms of a bad office is not having it soundproofed where people in the lobby can hear you. I had a therapist that had a situation like that where the door to the office was really thin, and, and I always wondered if people in the lobby could hear every word I was saying. Also, another issue is not having a, a good couch. I've seen a lot of different couches in therapy offices over the years, and there are some, some couches that are just, just awful, like way too soft, like a beanbaggy kind of couch, or too small or just uncomfortable in some way. So I think it's important to think about the couch that you use. Again, you're on a budget and this sort of thing, but it's just something to think about. Another thing is having bad clock placement or placing your clock in the wrong place. What I tend to do is I tell people to put a clock at 10 and 2. That's in my office. I, so if the client's at 12, I have a, I have a clock at 10 o'clock and a clock at 2 o'clock, if that makes any sense. Diagonal right, diagonal left. The, the, this is my preference, but it's, it's important to think about this. And some people will have 
some people will have no clock in their office, which is a problem. You know, you're responsible for keeping track of time, not only to end the session on time, but also to monitor at what point you are in the session. If you only have five minutes left, you don't want to start a new topic that's going to need a lot of time to talk about because you only have five minutes left. And so you need to periodically check in with what time it is. And the only way you can do that without hurting the client's feelings is to have it just behind them, but not too far and not too far away from them. If you have, if the clock is behind you or it's on, or it's a watch or a cell phone or something, and, and you have to look at your watch every five minutes and the client notices that you're doing that, it's going to hurt some client's feelings. Plus you want clients to feel free to free associate in, in session and you don't want them thinking about time, depending on your style of therapy. Some, some therapists will actually put a clock so that the client can see too, and there's pros and cons to that. But what I do is I have two clocks there behind the client. Now, I don't want the clock to be right behind their head because it'll distract me. So I want to be able to see it out of my peripheral vision. Another issue in terms of office being a problem is not having enough room for families or to get on the ground with children and not having enough room on your floor to play with children, depending on the sort of people you work with. Another problem with a, a bad office is having an office where people can see in. I once had a supervisee that had an office and I visited it and I said, oh, we got a problem here because people on the outside can see inside the office and that's a breach of confidentiality and it's going to make clients feel uncomfortable. So you need to address that. The eighth failure that I've suffered from is not being real. I think that I was like this again more often in the beginning of my career, but it's important to try to be authentic as a therapist and not be fake. Because when you're fake, when you come across as being fake or when you come across as putting on a persona of some kind, the client will feel that and will not feel as comfortable and the relationship will suffer. And we all know that the relationship is the most important thing in therapy. And so it's important to try to be real. And this takes time to integrate your therapist self with your real self. And some people actually have a hard time being their real self with anybody, let alone their clients. And so as therapists, it's important to continue to grow and continue to try to develop yourself, your sense of self, your differentiated self, your authenticity, and to try to be that way with clients because it'll, it'll help the clients feel comfortable. It'll help the clients feel understood by a real human. They'll, they'll feel a better connection with you. And so try to, try to be real. And again, I, I failed in this way particularly early in my career. The ninth failure that I've perpetrated is not talking about religion with my clients. I tell my students, and there's a lot of gasps sometimes, that I say, most of your clients are highly religious, and yet most therapists are not, or a lot of therapists are not, uh, particularly in Seattle, because Seattle is particularly non-religious. It's one of the, if not the most non-religious city in the union. And it's important to remember as therapists that most people are religious, and religion is a big part of their life, whether it's former religion or spirituality, belief in God, belief in heaven, or whatever they believe in. It's a major part of their life and often a major part of what should be being discussed in therapy. Now, it doesn't mean you shove the topic down a client's throat, but you should at least ask questions about it. For instance, I had a client recently who had someone die in their life, and I asked them, so what do you believe in a God? Do you believe in an afterlife? Do you believe in a heaven? Do you believe that this person is still around? Where do you think this person is? Can they talk to you? Can they see you? 
this is a very important part of grieving for some people and other aspects of life, like divorce or like the meaning of one's life. If someone's if someone believes if someone's a traditional Christian and they're wondering about the meaning of their life, a major part of where, of their exploration and their journey is asking them, what do you think God wants you to do? What do you think Jesus wants you to do? Now, this does not mean you have to be a Christian. It just means you have to understand the client's language and their world. And if they're a Mormon, if they're Jewish, if they're, if they're Muslim, if they're, you know, what a pagan, what a lot of clients will assume is that you don't want to talk about religion. They, they'll see therapy as a secular thing. And so they'll, they'll be embarrassed about bringing up their religion. But you'll find that with people that are particularly religious, if you ask them questions about it, they will, they will take to those conversations quite well. And using that to, uh, can be very helpful. You know, imagine you're talking with a couple and they're having a hard time accessing compassion for their partner. And you start asking them about their religion. You say, well, what, what do you think Jesus wants you to do? And they think, well, actually, what Jesus wants me to do is to forgive. That's, the, that's a primary Christian tenet, is to forgive and to love and to not hate and to not be angry. And Jesus is watching me, and if I, if I can accept the Lord into my heart, then that allows me to have more compassion toward my spouse. If you can have those conversations with clients, you can move much faster in therapy than if you try other means. Uh, religion and spirituality is is a very is the highway to the goals of therapy sometimes. <laughs> so stop taking the side streets and get on the highway. <laughs> uh, the 11th failure that I've suffered from is making decisions for clients. It's very compelling when a client comes to you and is suffering from some sort of indecision, like, should I quit my job? Should I get a divorce? Should I move away? Should I do this or that? That is very compelling as human beings to respond with some opinion about what they should do because we're all narcissistic and we think we know what's best for everybody. And clients will tap into that. And it's important as therapists to not only let on what your thoughts are about that, but actually to try to get rid of that in you yourself anyway. Like for instance, for me in my early career, I would make mistakes and I would fail in this way. And as I've developed, I've learned, look, I need to stop even having the thought that I even know what's best for other people because I've learned over and over again that I don't know anything about what's best for other people. I barely know what's best for myself. How would I know what's best for other people? Someone can tell me that they're suffering in their marriage and in my mind, I could be thinking, boy, they should really break up. And then three years later, they're still together and they're happy. And obviously, when I had that urge to tell them to break up, I didn't know what I was talking about and vice versa. So you really, when you become a therapist, you really realize how complicated decisions are and how we really have no idea how to predict the future. So the idea of therapy is to help people explore these issues without you providing barriers by adding in your own opinions about what's best for clients. Even when clients ask you, please tell me what to do, you really need to help clients understand that you're not going to do that because that's going to create problems. Not only will it say, for instance, you th- well, I think you should break up with him because he sounds like a jerk. Well, if the client doesn't break up with them, then the client will always know that you really wanted her to break up with them, and will it'll harm the relationship between you and her. Or if she does break up with them, and she does it primarily because you said so, 
then she will never really know if she did it for herself or she did it for you. Plus, it sets up a dependency, or she could be upset with you if things go wrong. Like you said, I should break up with him, and now I, I regret that decision. Why did you tell me that? So you, you really don't want to get into that game. You really want to help clients to make their own differentiated decisions. Number 12, it's important not to label things. And this is very important. And this is something that I suffered from early on, and I, I'm sure I've suffered from it recently as well. It's a languaging thing. For instance, if someone comes in and they're talking about their existential crisis and they're talking about how they wonder what they're doing on this planet and, and they, they wonder what and, – and they're terrified of death and they're terrified of what's on the other side of death. They don't know what's on the other side of death. And they're, you know, it, they think about this a lot. Well, if you don't know what that experience is like – and you're not mindful of what's happening in the moment, you might, you might think in your head, oh, this is death anxiety. I read about this. And then you say, oh, I see. You're suffering from death anxiety. And then you just label this very complicated topic, very complicated experience for this client with this very simple label. Oh, you have death anxiety. That can feel very demeaning to people and to clients. And so it's important not to do that with clients. And I, I see therapists do this sometimes. Like clients will be talking about, you know, oh, you know, sometimes I just feel like I'm not good enough and, and I, sometimes I just feel worthless. And, and the, client, uh, the therapist will say, oh, I see, you're suffering from low self-esteem. If you, when you say that, depending on the situation, because it certainly can be helpful to say something like that. But when you say stuff like that, clients will be like, oh, you're, you're putting me in a box. You, you're labeling me. You're seeing me in a textbook, in a textbook way. You're not, you're not really listening to me and my experience. So it's important not to just label things, and that, that's a failure of therapy. The 13th failure is to show up late for appointments. I'm an extremely punctual person, and so when I have been late to my sessions as a therapist, it is extremely mortifying. I can remember like five times in my 19 years that it's happened. It's probably happened more than that, maybe like 10 times or something. But it's, it's extremely disrespectful to the client to show up late. It can harm their relationship. If it happens because of an emergency, then, you know, what are you going to do? But if you're, if you're perpetually late or you're made, or you make your clients wait for you, I, uh, you know, frequently, I, I, I think it's very disrespectful and unprofessional and just, just terrible. So, you know, and, and so I've, I've failed in a few times like that. Like one time I remember I've mainly operated my private practice out of my home. I've often had a home office for a number of reasons, but this was, I don't know, like 10 years ago. I remember I slept in one morning and my, my alarm didn't go off or so, something. I don't know what happened, but I think my alarm didn't go off or something. And I'm in bed and the doorbell rings, the doorbell, the, you know, where my office is. And I shot up out of bed. <laughs> I just remember it's like ding dong. And like within, you know, a millisecond, I realized what had happened. It, I just, you know, I heard the noise. I woke up. I was mortified. I was like, crap. And I threw on pants and threw on a shirt, ran to the door, and I'm completely disheveled. You know, I literally woke up, you know, five seconds earlier, and I open the door and I say, I'm sorry, can you hold on a second? Give me five minutes. And so I quickly put myself together and had a session 
five minutes after I woke up. Um, so, you know, that was mortifying to me. A client rolled with it, you know. But, uh, okay, 15, don't ask if they want to talk about dreams. This is another failure. Now, not all therapists uh, think that dream talk is useful. But if you're the sort of therapist like me that think dreams are useful, it's important to ask. Now, some clients won't want to talk about their dreams, but like with religion, you should just throw it out there and say, so do you want to talk about your dreams? I'm, I'm, I, I'm willing to talk about dreams if you want to. It's a mistake to expect clients to bring up dreams because, again, they don't know if it's okay to bring up dreams. There's a lot of things that clients feel like they don't have permission to talk about, and so it's important to, to give permission to bring that sort of stuff up. 16, not, advocate, not advocating for people. This is a, a failure that I fail from, particularly, again, early career, is when someone is of an oppressed, marginalized group, it's important to do what you can to advocate for them. Now, you're not going to go out into the world and solve their problems, but you can help them ad- advocate for themselves. And, ha- and by understanding the place in society that this person comes from, you, you have a better understanding of their experience and a better understanding of what they might need help with and what they might need for you to be telling them. Because again, a lot of people tend to feel as though their sense of marginalization is particular to them and that they're going crazy. And so it's important to validate that experience for people. You know, for instance, an African-American man, if he's being treated in a racist manner, it's, it's important to point out that it's possible that he's being tra- treated in an unfair way because of this color of his skin and to validate that. And, and so, you know, in general, that's what we might call advocating for that person. There's a lot of different ways of advocating for clients, but it's just important to do that. And I've certainly failed from that. Essentially, when I get lazy, I stop thinking about that sort of stuff because society tells me that it's not important. And so I will fall into that trap. Number 17th failure that I have suffered from is not assessing early terminations. When a client terminates early, it's important to review possible factors that led to that early termination because then that will help you to treat your clients in the future in a better way. Number 18, the 18th failure that I've suffered from is being biased against men or being biased against women. As a man, I have a tendency probably to favor men over women or to not understand women or something. And so I've probably in all likelihood failed in this way by being biased against women, not listening to them as well, not understanding that, not spending the time to really value their opinion because society says women's opinions aren't as important as men, men's are. And so, you know, it's, a, it's an important thing to think about and a failure that I think all therapists suffer from, at least occasionally. 19, being biased against marriage. This is something that I suffered from probably earlier on. I definitely don't anymore because I've, I've learned, I think, the hard way to not be this way. And let me explain. I have found that this anecdotally to be true about a lot of therapists that I come into contact with. When a client comes in and complains about their marriage, so an individual, a woman comes in and says, oh, my husband, he's such a jerk, and he cheated on me, and he did this, and he did that. It's very, very common for therapists to have an unspoken, or maybe they're unaware of, an agenda to break up this woman and the man. They, they really want the woman to break up with the husband, and I call this a bias against marriage, but really what it is, 
in my opinion, is a bias toward wanting people to transform their lives. I find that a lot of therapists measure their success by their ability to, quote unquote, get clients to change something in their life. Like if they complain about their job, therapists will get really attached to getting the client to quit their job. And of course, that might be the solution for the client. But for the therapist to get attached to a particular thing is untherapeutic and heavy-handed and controlling and narcissistic that you believe that you know what's best. And I've certainly suffered from that. And I really try to fight against that. Another, the 20th failure that I've suffered from is not evaluating, not evaluating my work. Again, evaluating early terminations, but also just evaluating your work in general to really think about it, to really take the time. And this, this you have to do outside of sessions. You have to think like, what am I doing with this client? And this requires consultation, supervision, reading. Am I giving the, the, this client the best service? Where's my counter-transference? Where are we going? What am I doing here? This is a failure that I've failed many, many times, and I see other therapists doing it as well. 21, not believing in short-term therapy. I remember hearing from multiple sources. I don't know the exact statistic, but I think something like the average therapist, the average client comes in for something like four or five sessions. So on average, therapy is brief. But yet, in my experience, and I've failed from this myself and other therapists as well, we assume that when a client comes in and talks about their problems in the first session, that we assume that we're going to see them for a long time, for years. And we develop our treatment plan or our sense of where we are in the therapy based on this notion that they're going to be in therapy forever. But again, the average client only comes in for a few sessions. And so we really need to just acknowledge that that possibility, even if the client says, oh, I want to come for years, they still might only come for five sessions. And so it's important to uh, work from that, from that reality. So when a client comes in and they're talking about something big and something small, you probably shouldn't go into the big thing yet because you don't know how long they're going to be in therapy. And so you should probably focus on the small thing first because you might actually be able to accomplish that small thing in the five sessions you're going to get with them. So that's another failure that I have uh, suffered from. And 22, the 22nd failure that I've suffered from is not being aware of history, not being aware aware of where people are in their place and time and culture and history, not understanding the history of society and understanding how the history of society affects people today. I won't go into all the depths of the philosophy uh, in this area, but just know that There's a whole field of thinkers in psychotherapy that like to really think a lot about how we are all products of history and society and culture. And when we understand that better, we understand ourselves, we understand our clients, and we understand how to treat people better. So the 23rd failure that I have perpetrated is not referring the client when necessary. It's important to refer clients when necessary. It sounds like an obvious thing, but I find that a lot of therapists have a hard time doing this. You know, say things aren't really working out with your relationship with a particular client. Well, before you, re- you truly lose them, it might be a good idea to refer them to another clinician for the benefit of the client. Just because they're not working with you doesn't mean they might not work with someone else. So it's important to refer Or say they bring up a topic that you don't know much about, but another clinician does know a lot about it. It's important to refer them to that other clinician. I think the reason why a lot of therapists fail in this this way is because when we are all starting out in private practice, 
we tend to really want clients because we're desperate for new clients. And it, it creates this kind of scarcity demand or whatever that creates an urgency on behalf of the therapist to retain all their clients and keep their clients in, in, in therapy for as long as possible because your, your income literally depends on that. And referring clients away would be akin to McDonald's telling someone, oh, you should go to Burger King. You might like their burgers better. <laughs> you know, it's, it's akin to that. And so it's, it, 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 um, there's a lot of reasons why therapists might be steered – they might steer themselves away from referring clients. Now, this isn't necessarily as true at agencies because the therapists who work at, at agencies aren't dependent on the clients to – give them their paychecks per se. But some agencies are like this too because they they want to make money as a whole and they don't want to refer their clients outside the agency. If you refer clients within agency, that, that might be also helpful or that might be acceptable to the agency. But another barrier that, that I have to referring clients is worrying that the client will like someone else better than me. Uh, we all have inherent narcissism and inherent insecurities, and we all want to be thought of as the best in the world. And when someone considers someone else better than us, then it's a blow to our self-esteem. And one way to manage that is to never let a client work with any other therapist again for the rest of their life. And Because if they only work with you, then you're the best therapist they've ever worked with, right? <laughs> and so that's another reason why I think referring doesn't happen, at least on my end. I don't know about other therapists. All right, 24. We need to see clients and their strengths. When I work with students, I'll show them a video of a client in session, and I'll say at the, end of the, at the end of the video, I'll say, okay, tell me all the problems you'll see. The conversation will go on for hours if I let it. They'll, they'll have a million negative things to say about the client. And then I stop it and I say, okay, well, now tell me about the client's strengths. Tell me what you see as strengths about this family. And I get a lot of blank stares. And it's because, not because these students are stupid, it's because our society has not taught us how to do this. Our society has taught us how to criticize, how to find problems. It has not taught us how to find strengths in other people. That is not encouraged in our society. But it is so important for therapy, not only to have a well-rounded view of clients and to acknowledge reality, but also when you understand someone's strengths, you understand what might be helpful to capitalize on. For instance, if someone is having problems with social anxiety, but a strength of theirs is that they are very dedicated to uh, accomplishing their goals, then you can say, well, you are a very dedicated person based on other things you've told me, so I'm sure you'll tackle this problem of the social anxiety because you've accomplished so many different goals in the past. You're a very dedicated when – you, when you decide on something, you make sure it happens. So I'm guessing it's going to work here too. And that alone might help someone with their social anxiety. So there are a million other ways you can use strengths to help clients get to where they want to go. So it's important to see that. And, I, and I've, I've failed in that way uh, off and on throughout my career uh, by not recognizing people's strengths. The 25th failure is having problems with goals. It's very important to understand the goals of clients. Very understand, very, very important. I, I suffered from this more in the beginning, and this kind of has to do with the main hypothesis thing. But it's important to understand what the, what the goals are of the therapy. 
And when I was younger, particularly when I was an intern, there were a lot of times when if you would have asked me, what are the goals of this therapy? I would have been like, uh, I don't really know. And that's a big problem. Again, if you don't, if you don't have a main hypothesis, if you don't have a goal, if you can't articulate it very quickly, then there's something really wrong with what you're doing. You're basically just providing treatment without any sort of conceptualization of why you're doing what you're doing. So you need to have a goal. And it's important to have goal consensus. It's important to have a collaboration with the client regarding the goals. And it's also important to really listen to what the client wants. I was talking with an intern today, and she was saying, well, how can I get the client to do blank? And I said, well, does the client want to do blank? And she said, no. And I said, well, then why do you want the client to do blank? It shouldn't, why, why are you imposing your goals on the client? Um, and she was like, huh. And then she realized that she was being pressured by her supervisor to, to do blank. And then we decided, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. So when you're in session, make sure you understand what the goals are and make sure that the goals are congruent with what the client wants, which sounds like a ridiculous thing, but a lot of therapists will, particularly when you're dealing with agency clients that, uh, and kids that are being dragged in by their parents, there, there might not be goal consensus with the child. So anyway, number 27, the 27th failure that I have I have perpetrated is not assessing the stage of change or tailoring therapy to the stage of change. I was particularly bad about this, again, in the beginning of my career because I was never taught about stage of change. It's something that, for whatever reason, is not talked about in therapy very much. In other words, and I won't get into a long discussion, maybe I'll do a whole, whole episode on this, but... It's important to understand where someone is in their stage of change. People start off as what they call pre-contemplative, meaning they haven't really even begun to think of themselves as having a problem with that. And and then they end up then they start thinking about it and then they start planning and then they start taking action and then they actually start monitoring whether or not their action works. And this can take years for people to go down that path. Like, you know, say, for instance, you, you suffer from weight loss or, some, or weight gain. And you, at first, you might kind of be in denial about it. You might be like, oh, everything's okay. And then as time goes on, you might be like, huh, I am gaining weight. This is a problem now. I need to, I need to change this. But you're not doing anything about it. You're still eating the same. You're not exercising. You're not ready to make any changes yet. And if someone came along and said, why aren't you doing anything? You'd be like, well, screw you, stop judging me. Because you're not ready. You're not ready to take action. And then time passes, and then you're like, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take action. And you take action, but you don't take enough action. You're not really willing to make the sacrifices to lose the weight. And so you're not, you're not at that point yet. And then at a later date, you get to a point where you're like really dedicated. You're like, okay, I know I've dabbled in dieting, and this time I'm really going to go for it, and I'm going to exercise every day and I'm going to count my calories, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that. And that's, a, that's what they call action phase. Phase Everything before that was not action phase. Where, but in therapy, regardless of the issue, I find, and I think research shows, that therapists generally treat all clients as if they're in action phase when almost none of their clients are in action phase. In other words, when a client comes in and says, I have a problem with blank, 
client therapists will treat clients as if that client is ready to take action, is ready to actually dedicate themselves to changing that, but they might not be. It depends on where they are at in their arc of stage of change. And different therapy techniques will work differently at different stages of change. And so it's important to not only assess the stage of change, but also to tailor the therapy accordingly. The 28th failure that I've suffered from is not asking clients about their previous therapy and why they terminated or if things went well in their previous therapy. When you ask clients about their previous therapy, that will tell you a lot about what you need to do because you'll hear clients' true thoughts about, about what therapy is. You know, They might say something like, well, my last therapist talked too much. And so you, so you think, oh, okay, well, I need to figure out what that means to this client and monitor that because I'm, this the client might be particularly sensitive to that and I don't want to ruin our relationship by talking too much, whatever that means. Or another client might say, my therapist kept asking me about my childhood and I didn't want to talk about my childhood. And you might have stepped on that landmine if, if you didn't know about that. So it's really important to ask clients about their previous therapy. The 29th failure that I've suffered from is not instilling enough hope in clients. When I get lazy or when I'm in a bad mood or when I'm tired or something, suffering from countertransference, I will lose this one. I will, I will fail in this way. I, I will not dedicate myself to inspiring clients toward hope, toward believing that they, they can achieve what they want to achieve and that, that anything's possible. It's important to do that. And it's a skill and it's an art form and it's, it's a difficult thing, but it's very important to do this. A lot of clients really benefit from hearing that there is hope. They listen to us and they, they want to know our perspective. You know, They see us as people that have seen a lot of different problems and a lot of different stories of problems, and we have. And if someone comes to us and we say, you know what, the, the, what you are telling me I think is completely doable. What you want to do in therapy is, is doable. I think, you know, it's three to six months. I think you can, you can achieve this if you want to. And I don't see any reason why you can't achieve that. That's a big deal. And a lot of therapists, including myself sometimes, don't do this. They don't, they don't say that. I think a lot of therapists think that they don't want to get their client's hopes up or they don't want to reassure their client. And certainly there are reasons why you don't want to get client's hopes up or be over-reassuring. But I think when used wisely, instilling hope can, can go a long way. It might even be the only thing that you need to do with some clients, just telling them that it's possible might be all the intervention you need to do, and then they're off and running in a positive direction because they didn't believe that it was possible until you told them that. And then when they, you told them that, they were inspired and they move forward. The, 30, the, the 32nd failure that I've suffered from is not acknowledging the power of phenomenology and listening. This is something that I frequently fail from, and I see other therapists doing this as well, and I try to talk with my supervisees about this. It's a complicated, complicated thing. But in general, the, the, the thing I try to remind myself is that when we as, as, we, when we as therapists truly listen to our clients and really am just purely curious about their experience and ask a lot of questions about their experience, that there is a lot of therapeutic power in that. 
you know, client comes in and is complaining about their boss. And the normal human compulsion is to say, okay, well, how can I help this client fight back with the boss? Or how can I, how can I help this client assert themselves? Or how can I help this client feel as though they're, they're right in this, in this fight or something? You know, I'm exaggerating and talking about a lot of bad therapy, but that's the compulsion. However, if you stick to the phenomenology and stick to the being curious and trying to understand people's experience and really listening and, and really reflecting and proving that you're listening, proving that you understand what their experience is, sometimes that's all the therapy someone needs. Someone comes in, they're complaining about their boss, and you say, oh, tell me, about, tell me more about that. Oh, I see. So you're saying that it hurt your feelings that your boss did that? I, that's, oh, yeah, that sounds really hard. I, I, underst- I could see how that would hurt your feelings. I could see how that would be frustrating. And, oh, your boss does that all the time. Wow, you know, that's, that's really, you know, terrible. Tell me more. What, you know, how does this, you know, make you feel? And what's it like to tell me about it? And, and what do you think your coworkers think about this? And, you know, just, just being very curious about someone's experience clients will walk away from a conversation like that feeling better. They'll feel as though their therapy was a good use of their time. Not always, but what, when I'm lazy or when I forget, I forget to really pay attention. The other thing is, is that it really helps you understand what's happening. I find that when I'm lazy and I, when I'm hearing other therapists and their work, I sometimes see myself and other people just listening to a little bit about the client's story and assuming that we understand the entire story and then just moving forward. And then you'll find that you'll make mistakes and the client will say, I don't think you really get what I'm saying. And that can be very frustrating to a client to feel as though their therapist doesn't really understand what's happening. So it's important to be very curious and to spend you know, a good amount of time, a necessary amount of time on understanding the client's experience. The 33rd failure that I've suffered from is not asking for clients' feedback. This is a very important thing and empirically shown to improve outcomes in therapy. By just asking for the client's opinion about the therapy, that can improve outcomes regarding goal achievement. Now, this can be done in a number of different ways. You can give them a survey that asks them a bunch of questions about the therapy that they're doing with you, or you can just ask them verbally. You can just say, how, did, how was today's session? What do you think about today? Is there something I could have done differently? And a lot of therapists, including myself, they don't ask this question because they're terrified about the answer. They're terrified that the the client is going to say, well, actually, I don't really like being in therapy with you. I I think you're a terrible therapist. And to protect ourselves from that possibility, we just don't ask. We don't want to know. And so, uh, you know, on the face of it, that's ridiculous, right? So we should always ask that. And I have found when I ask... It is liberating to ask because as soon as I ask, I realize, you know what? The client might say they don't like the therapy, but wouldn't I want to know that information? (laughs) Shouldn't I know if the client doesn't like the therapy? Because then it'll give me an opportunity to provide the therapy that they need and want. So it's important to get client feedback. The 34th failure that I have suffered from is blaming clients for relationship ruptures. When there is a relationship rupture, uh, a big problem in the relationship with the client, what therapists will often do, including myself, is to blame the client, is to say, it's not me, it's them. And so that's, of course, a failure. Now, the client is culpable probably for 
some of the reason why the relationship rupture happened. But in all likelihood, the therapist also contributed to it in some way. And when I'm working with supervisees, this is, you know, something that I really focus on is, okay, you had a relationship rupture. Sure, the client is culpable for for it, and we could blame the client for 100% of it, but how did you contribute to it? What did you do to have that happen? And what's your responsibility for repairing that relationship rupture? The 35th failure that I have perpetrated is not being integrated. When I first started in my career, I accepted and really liked particular theories and rejected other theories. And now I accept all theories. I think all the theories are great. Now, there are certain elements of some theories that I don't like, particularly like classical Freudian psychoanalysis. Some of the stuff from back then is really ridiculous, like the anal phase and all that stuff. But, but as, I, as I understand the, th- the various theories more deeply and I gain more experience, I realize that all the theories have merit. And given the situation, I might use particular theories with, with, it, with clients in one situation and a different theory in another situation. And so in my view, and this is a minority view, is that it's a failure to not be integrated, to not integrate multiple theories into your practice. The 36th, the 36th failure is not treating trauma correctly. And I've talked about this before, and I absolutely failed in this way in the beginning of my career. I won't go into the details because I have a whole episode about trauma therapy, but understand that in order to treat trauma correctly, you really need to understand trauma treatment fairly well. And it's, it's pretty complicated, and you need a lot of experience and supervision in it. It's not just understand like there's a popular model going around now called TFCBT or trauma focused cognitive behavioral therapy, and it's quote unquote evidence based. And the problem with it is that a lot of people feel as though they know what they're doing when they're given a two hour training on it, or even less. They're given a book and they read the book and now they know how to do it. Trauma is extremely complicated. It's not super complicated, but it is complicated. And the treatment of trauma is also complicated. Every client is different. The, the, the trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy model, basically, and for the most part, and some people would argue with me about this, basically treats every, every trauma client the same. And every client is not the same. And it's important to know how to adjust given client presentation given client symptomology, given client reactions to narratives. and Anyway, the 38th failure that I have done is by giving too much advice. It's you know a common rule in therapy to not give advice. And I say that there should be no rules in therapy, that sometimes giving advice is exactly what would be helpful for a client. But it's also common for me and other therapists to give too much advice that to, again, it goes back to things I've talked about before in terms of solving clients problems and um, it's complicated, but in general you want to avoid giving too much advice. The 38th failure that I've suffered from is thinking that I know what's best for the client. And again, this I've already sort of talked about that, but just to be more specific, we don't ever want to think what's best for our client because we don't know shit. The 40th failure is thinking about clients 
as having a fixed identity. In other words, when we see people, we tend to get to know their personality, their identity, the way that they act. And in my philosophical opinion and others as well, people every day choose a particular identity. And that at any time, we can, with some freedom, choose to have a different identity. And it's very complicated, but in essence, you know, say someone comes in, and, like a, a man, and he's a tough guy, and he doesn't show emotion very much. Well, after a while, it's tempting to just say, well, that's how he is. He's a rigid, unemotional person. But what I've found is that when I believe that clients can choose to be whoever they want to be at any moment, that there is a is that it's that ma- that attitude manifests in my treatment of clients, and they exhibit more flexibility in themselves. So it's important not to believe that the persona is the person. The forty first failure is just plain old bigotry. When we are bigoted, we are not providing good therapy, and we are failing. The forty second failure is bias. And I won't go into all the details on that, but just when you are exhibiting destructive bias, that, of course, is a failure. The 43rd is not confronting clients when necessary. Again, it has to do with your style of therapy, and everyone's different. But I have found that it's important sometimes to confront your clients, to just tell them straight up something that they are not likely very happy about hearing, but that they benefit from hearing. It's important not to be afraid of that. Now, you don't want to do that all the time necessarily, but it's something to consider and it's, and it's something I've failed from with some clients. And I think the problem when I did fail in this way was because I was afraid, I was intimidated about what I predicted the client's reaction would be. I was worried that the client would freak out and that would be bad for me and so I just didn't do it. And I think I over-erred on the side of not doing it. I think it's important to to not be too afraid of confronting clients in a helpful way. The 44th failure that I have done is terminating badly. When, when clients terminate, it's important to do a number of things that I won't go into that are, that are important and ethical. And when I'm lazy, I don't do those things. And that's a failure. The 45th failure is not thinking systemically or not thinking culturally. I'm sort of lumping these two in together because there's overlap. But when we don't think in terms of systems, and again, I won't go into full detail on this because it's pretty complicated, but when, when I don't recognize the system and I don't think systemically, when I don't think culturally, then I am missing a big part of the picture and will not capitalize on particular treatment ideas that might be helpful. The 46th failure is talking too much. As you all know, as listeners to this podcast, I'm not afraid of talking a lot. And as a therapist, I have definitely failed in this, in this way. Now, a lot of you might be surprised, but in general, I tend to prefer to listen for the entire session and say as little as possible. So as a, as a therapist, I, I, I'm, a primi- I'm primarily a listener, and I, when I'm at my best, I'm, I'm talking very little. But but again, when I'm triggered or counter-transference or I am not remembering my tenets of good therapy, I talk too much. I, I have too much that I want to get off my chest, and, and it's becoming more about me and not about the client. And as clients out there, 
you've probably had this experience before. As a client myself, I've experienced this before. And it's an interesting feeling. It's like, oh, my therapist really wants to talk about this. And I kind of feel like my therapist is wasting my time right now. And you don't want to do that to your clients. It's supposed to be about the client's time. It's not your time. Plus, if you find yourself explaining something for longer than 30 seconds, in all likelihood, you're, you're explaining something either something that's too complicated or you're explaining too many things at once. It's important just to try to get one thing across at a time, and that shouldn't take much time. The 47th failure is just playing with kids. You know, I, I, I have done this my, in my past. The, the way that this failure is you have a, a child, like a six-year-old client, and instead of actually dedicating yourself to providing therapy and really pushing yourself to work on particular issues in the client's life, you decide that you just you don't, you just can't you don't want to deal with it and you, you just play with the child. Most child therapists are not like this, but I've certainly failed in this way at times. I, I remember one time I was working with this kid and we were doing Legos or drawing or something, and we're on the floor and. I, I'm so engrossed in this activity that we're doing together that the session ran over and the client looked at me and he was like, I think, I think my time is up. And I was like, Oh, I guess it is. I, I, and then I realized, wait, I've completely forgotten that I'm a therapist and I was totally into just playing and it's not a huge failure, but it is a failure in, at least in a minor way in terms of forgetting why I'm doing what I'm doing. And when you get used to a particular child client and you get used to the style of play that you get involved in, you can sometimes forget why you're there. The 48th failure is being overprotective of, overprotective of clients, especially children. You are not the savior of your clients. You might want to save your clients and because you're a nice person and you're a compassionate person, you want to help everybody, but you are not anyone's savior. And it's important not to be overprotective of them. Now, you, you want to help them and you want to advocate for them. But things like a 17-year-old comes in to talk with you and says that he isn't allowed to go out with his friends on Friday night because he's grounded, because he got a, a, an F on a test. And you believe that that's unfair. And you feel very over, overprotective and you call up the parents and tell them that you think that their rule is wrong and unfair. This, you know, depending on the situation, but the way I described it, this is being overprotective. It's not helpful. You are trying to save the client from their own life. You're trying to fix their problems for them. Now, you, just because you think it's unfair does not mean it is unfair, and that's another failure that if I don't get into, just let me say that's another massive failure is, is equating your own cultural understanding with everyone else's cultural understanding and being so arrogant to believe that just because you, th you feel as though something is the way that it is means that it just is inherently. And if you're white and you're privileged, and this is particularly bad of you to be doing. Uh, it's bad for anyone to do. But if you're used to a particular privilege and you're used to people uh, adhering to your idea of what is right and wrong because you're the dominant culture in America, then you're perpetrating a particular problem. You're, you're, you're acting on your privilege. And it's important to understand that there are various different cultures, there's various different family cultures, and that you need to respect that.
it doesn't mean that all parenting practices are are in, you know encouraged by therapists, but it does mean that you need to check your your biases and your cultural understandings. The 49th failure is not apologizing. I've failed from this in the past. When I, ha- when I have made a mistake as a therapist, I have failed to apologize. Apologies in therapy are a powerful thing. And it, it can obviously can help the relationship, which again is the most important thing. But it also models for a client how someone can take responsibility for themselves and, and ask for forgiveness. Everyone makes, mis- everyone makes mistakes. I think it was uh, Bert and Ernie that said that. Everyone makes mistakes, so yes, they do. Big one, or is it Big Bird? I can't remember. One of them, one of the Sesame Street fellows sings that song. Is Big Bird a fellow? <laughs> is Big Bird male or female? Uh, oh, I'm such a binary thinker. Um, the 50th failure that I've suffered from is avoiding tense topics. When I am afraid of a tense topic in therapy, I might fail by avoiding it, even though I know better, even though I know it should be talked about. The 51st failure is trying to act like a competent therapist when you don't feel like one. When you act like a competent therapist, you're not being yourself. And as I was talking about earlier, it's important to be yourself. It's okay to say, you know what, I don't know what I'm doing in this moment. I don't know what's happening. I feel like I I don't know what's going on. You don't necessarily have to communicate that to the client. You might. But at the very least, just say to yourself, right now, I'm feeling very incompetent. And I don't know what's happening right now. And, you know, contemplate it, consult this sort of thing. It's okay to not know what you're doing. But when you're constantly acting like you know what you're doing, that can be a problem because you're not being real and you're not acknowledging your own issues. If I'm not, I don't think I'm explaining that very well, but I hope you get my point. The 52nd failure that I've suffered from is not having enough patience. It's important to have patience with clients. They might take a while before they move forward in a particular direction. You might think, boy, it's really obvious, and the client even knows that they need to move forward in this way, and they're not. I remember early in my career working with a mother and her son, and they were enmeshed. They had two loose boundaries between the two of them. And I I was trying to help them with that, and I worked really hard, and the mom eventually said, you know what, you're right, Kirk, I am enmeshed with my son. And then I said, okay, so now that we've all agreed, we should see change right away. And months went by without any change. Even though she knew she was enmeshed with her child, change never happened. And I was getting very impatient. And when I look back, I say, you know, just be patient. Things take time. Not everyone changes overnight. The 53rd failure that I've suffered from is following my own agenda. I did this particularly in the beginning of my career. I'd walk into the session with a with an agenda in my mind about the way where I wanted things to go myself. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a rough draft or a tentative agenda, but there is something wrong with forcing the client into your agenda without really understanding where the client is. I think that's that failure is self apparent. The fifty fourth failure is making the same mistakes repeatedly. And this has to do with really monitoring your, your style of therapy and, and, and what's happening. And again, if you get feedback from clients, you'll be able to recognize this more. Uh, 
But it's important to recognize your mistakes, one, and particularly the mistakes you make repeatedly. And it's important to really try to tackle those things because there's nothing wrong with making a mistake, really, but there is something wrong with not learning from your mistakes, right? I tell this to my students all the time. I tell them, there's nothing wrong with you making a mistake as a therapist or a student, but there is something wrong with you making a mistake, me telling you it's a mistake, and then you not doing anything to correct for it. That is a problem. The 55th failure is to not adjust therapy over time. We need to be constantly monitoring how therapy is going and not to fall into a rut. The 56th failure is not having an idea where therapy is even going. This has to do with the main hypothesis thing. We should have an idea, at least a vague idea, of where therapy is headed. In the moment, over the weeks, we should have an idea of where things are going. To just provide a service without any understanding of the big picture, I think, is a problem. Because without an understanding of that, you might be going in a direction that might not be helpful at all, or you might, or you might be going in no direction. The 57th failure that I've suffered from is being arrogant and narcissistic about my own ideas. We're all generally like this, but I have noticed in my life when I have been particularly arrogant about my own thoughts and about thinking I'm special or thinking I know it all or something. And this is an arrogant attitude that's not helpful, obviously, as a therapist. It makes me criticize clients. It makes me not listen to them. It makes me think that I don't need to listen to them. Uh, or it makes me think that I know better than them or something. And, and those kinds of thoughts are a failure in the moment. All right, so let's go into self-care. We've moved out of bad therapy, and now let's go into bad self-care. Number 58, not taking vacations. It's important for therapists to take vacations. Do not sacrifice your, your life for your clients. You're not going to help yourself, and you're not helping your clients. Your clients need you to be balanced, and you need vacations to be balanced. So take vacations. You can fail, number 59, by not advocating for your own schedule. It's important to advocate for your own schedule. As a younger therapist, I absolutely failed in this way. I almost never took a vacation, and I also didn't advocate for my own schedule. I think it's because when you first start out, you're so you're so desperate for clients that you'll take clients whenever you know whenever they want to see you. And as I've gained more experience, I've realized that clients will adjust to your schedule if they want to see you enough. Now you have to be somewhat flexible, but for the most part, you can make your own schedule. And if a client doesn't fit into that schedule, then maybe they need to be referred somewhere else. So advocate for your own schedule. You deserve it. Number 60, you can fail by not noticing your own distress. You need to notice your own distress. You need to know when you are feeling stress and distress and upsetness. Number 61, I failed in the past by not having a good countertransference management system. A lot of therapists don't have this. When I ask them, so how do you manage your countertransference? They say, uh, what do you mean? And I say, well, obviously you have countertransference frequently, right? It happens all the time. So how do you manage it? And they say, uh, I don't know. And so that's a problem. And I used to not have a management system myself as well. I talked about my management system in a previous podcast. Listen to that one if you want more information. Number 62, not firing some clients. I failed in the past for not firing certain clients. You know, every now and then, let's say one in a thousand, one in 10,000 clients, they present so much of a problem for you that 
you really ought to just fire them as clients. You really ought to just say, you know what? I think we're going to have to go our separate ways. I'm going to have to give you some referrals, and and I don't think this is going to work out. And again, I think it's because in the beginning, as interns, as beginning therapists, you're so desperate for clients that you would never fire any client. But it's important to advocate for yourself. This is a self-care issue. If a client is abusing you or if a client is dragging you down or ruining your day, after some consultation, if you decide that it's best to fire the client, then I say do it for your own professional well-being. There needs to be a balance between the client's well-being and your well-being. If you are suffering and your life is going down the tubes because you are putting the client's well-being first all the time, then that's not fair. So you really need to think about that. Number 63, I failed in the past by not having a crisis plan for a particular situation, for particular situations, you know, like particular weird situations. We need to have crisis plans for those as therapists. You're talking to a husband and a wife barges in the office and you've never met the wife. She starts screaming at you. You should have some kind of crisis plan. You shouldn't be taken completely off guard by that. So it's important to have crisis plans regarding that. And I could probably do better in that way. 64, regarding self-care, I have failed by paying too much for an office in the past. I think some therapists get really nervous about being judged as not having a good enough office and will therefore find a very fancy office and pay a lot of money for it with the idea that they want their clients to respect them and they're going to use their office as a part of that. But in my experience, clients generally come to therapy to talk to you. They don't come to therapy to sit in your office. They don't really care how fancy your office is. They care more about who you are as a person and who you are as a therapist. So although, as I said before, it's a mistake to not think about the decor of your office, it's also, I think, a mistake to pay too much money for your office. I mean, it's up to you, of course, but I think you can fail by paying too much for an office. Office space is expensive. It's very expensive, and, and you just have to be careful about that. Number 65, not advocating for yourself. I think that's self-apparent. Number 66, don't translate your work with clients with your life. So in other words, it's, it's a self-care issue that when you are working with clients that you can translate everything that you're doing with your clients into your own life. This is a wonderful benefit of being a therapist, and I think it's a, it's a minor failure to not capitalize on that. You're talking to someone that resembles you. You, you, know, you find yourself talking to someone that suffers from a similar issue that you suffer from. Well, as you're doing that, you're, you're viewing yourself from the outside, in, in essence, and by doing that, you can gain new, a new perspective. And as you're trying to help the client, you could say to yourself, huh, I, sh- I should actually be doing this too. And so that's just one of the ways that you can capitalize on, uh, on therapy that you're providing and actually apply it to yourself. Number 67, think your difficulties are unique to you. I have failed in this way. When I have had difficulties as a therapist, I've thought, oh, that's unique to me. I'm alone in this. No one else has experienced this before. There's something wrong with me. That's a failure. It's important to remember that your difficulties as a therapist are likely shared by a lot of therapists, if not all therapists. That's important to do for self-care. Number 68, I have failed in the past by hating my job and not changing it. 
it's important when you hate your job or when you dislike your job to change it, to think about how you can find a different part of this industry to work in. There's a lot of different jobs in this industry. I have worked a lot of different gigs. And it's important to look around and to network and to stretch your wings and to have the job that you deserve. I have failed in the past, number 69, by not continuing to push myself to try new things. It's important to continue to grow. And this is a personal preference, but I think it's important to continue to push yourself to try new things, to try things that are outside of your comfort zone and to keep your profession lively and interesting. Number seven, I have failed in the past by feeling too old or feeling too young. When I was first starting out, I often felt too young to be able to help people. I was, you know, 25 when I became an intern. And I thought, how am I supposed to help these 65-year-olds? I know nothing about life. But that's a mistake. It's a mistake to do that. And as I grow older, I'm 44 now, and sometimes I feel like I'm too old to help young people, you know, to help teenagers and stuff. And I think that's a mistake. Certainly there are differences in generations, but to be human is to be human. And just because you don't understand something doesn't mean you can't help somebody. So that's a, that's a failure is to think you're too old or too young. Another failure is to be a perfectionist. I think that uh, doesn't need an explanation. Number 72, you can fail by always being a therapist, even when you're outside of your office, like when you're hanging out with your family and friends and you just you know, continue to be a therapist with people. I've certainly failed in this way in the past, absolutely. It's not fair to people around you to treat people like clients, and they don't want to be treated that way. Plus, you know, leave it at work. In fact, a lot of ways... Um, therapists actually benefit by having clients because they get that energy out of their systems with their client and then they don't have to force their family and friends to be clients. Number 73, I failed in the past by not going to therapy sometimes. There was a time in my life when I probably waited a little too long to go back to therapy. That's a failure. We need to be going to therapy. Number 74, not valuing my time. It's important to value my time. It's important to address no-shows of clients. If a client no-shows, you know, that's your time. Now, maybe you like no-shows because you're like, oh, I got to do paperwork or this or that. But if it's bothersome to you, make sure you value your time. I have a supervisee who has a very, very tight, busy schedule. And when he has a no-show, he was really struggling with it. He's like, well, I feel bad for the client because they keep no-showing and I know that they're struggling in life. But it's a really big pain in the ass for me to drive down to my office and I only see private clients at, at night after my day job and I just don't know what to do. And, and my advice is, you know, value your time. There's a balance, again, between caring for clients and caring for yourself and your time is important and, and so no-shows should be reacted to accordingly. Number 75, I failed in the past by not scheduling well, so... I wasn't able to get time with my family or leisure time. So in other words, I, again, I would schedule for the client's benefit. I would say, well, when can you meet? And they would say uh, Sunday at 3 or Friday night at 8 or something. And I would say, oh, okay, I'll take that. And what that would do is it basically would eliminate my life, my regular life. And so it's important to value your, your, own, your own life in that way. Number 76, not getting enough sleep. This is a big thing. 
you really do not want to be sleepy in session. It is a, it is disrespectful. It's painful to some extent as a as a therapist as you're trying to wake yourself up. You know, you're biting the inside of your cheek and stuff. This is not good. So it's important to get enough sleep. If you find yourself being sleepy with your clients, it's it's your job to address your sleep issues and your energy issues and your bodily issues. So get on top of that stuff. Number 77, not believing in yourself. It's important to believe in yourself. You are a good person. You have dedicated a lot of time and energy into being this this profession to helping people. Your heart's in the right place for sure. And you need to believe in yourself that you're a good enough person and you're and you have skills and you have you have competence in this in this field. Number 78, losing control of yourself. It is a failure to lose control of your emotions and to lose control of your ability to react in a therapeutic manner. I think that's pretty uh, self-explanatory. Number 79, number 79, not healing your own traumas. You know, I don't want to call this a failure per se, but if you have had trauma and you've experienced trauma, it's important to address that as a therapist because not only are you suffering unnecessarily uh, and your healing is being put off, but you're also potentially going to have substandard treatment for your clients because when your trauma is touched upon, you're not going to be performing as well. So it's important to, to heal from your traumas, mostly just because you deserve the healing. All right, so that's self-care. Let's get into ethics. Number 80, I have failed in the past by having bad boundaries with clients. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty good with boundaries, but sometimes I've overstepped my the, the boundary regarding maybe too much self-disclosure, maybe being too friendly with clients in session. And other ways that people break boundaries that I have not done is having sex with clients, having full-on friendships with clients outside of the session, touching in inappropriate ways, creeping clients out. A, a friend of mine actually came to me and said that her new therapist completely creeped her out in a sexual way and she never went back. And I just thought, my God, that is a massive failure. All right, 81, you can... You can fail as a therapist by treating your friends or treating your acquaintances, taking, taking your friends as your clients. I have seen therapists do this. Most therapists do not. But I've seen therapists do this. I, I've never done this. It's important to have boundaries, and it's important to follow the general guidelines of ethics. Now, if you're in a small town, it's a little different, uh, but most people live at least in a big enough town that it doesn't justify taking on your friends as clients or your, even your friends of friends. It's, it's a very difficult place to be in when you're doing that. I won't go into the details on that, but that's generally considered a failure. 82, assuming you know all the ethical considerations and laws. I have failed in this way in the past. There have been situations where I run into a particular situation and I just sort of think off the top of my head, okay, what are the ethical considerations here? And I think, okay, I probably know it all, and so moving forward without consulting. It's important to consult, you know, how, how is it possible that I alone can come up with all the ethical considerations in a certain, in a certain situation? Also, I'm biased. I'm, I'm going to be biased for me, and so it's extremely important to consult. I, 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 sort of on a related topic, today I sent out – I was considering a policy change as, as chair of the Couple and Family Therapy Program. 
I was considering a policy clarification in my program. And I thought I had the answer. I thought, okay, yeah, I think I've figured out how to how to clarify this policy in the in the program in the master's program. But then I put out an email to my colleagues, my fellow professors, and I said, you know, what do you guys think? And they brought up some points, and then I thought, huh, actually, I shouldn't change it this way. And I actually completely went against what I was originally going to do because I consulted. And if I hadn't consulted, then that would have that would have led me down a road that um, I would have regretted later, all because uh, I would have thought that I knew everything. But of course, how can I know everything? There's no way one person can know everything. So you really have to ask around. So don't think that you know all the stuff about ethical considerations and whatnot. Number 83, not saying I don't know. I've talked about this recently on the podcast. It's important as a therapist to say I don't know when you don't know. It's okay to say I don't know. There's a lot of reasons why that is true. Number 84, I failed in the past by not doing my research before taking a questionable action. So before you take a questionable action, make sure you do your research. I had a supervisee once that uh, would repeatedly make decisions without asking questions, without consulting, without doing the research, without looking up the, the literature on the topic. And this is a dangerous thing. It's it's an arrogant thing. It's an irresponsible thing. Make sure you look up the research. Number 85, it's a failure to be weird online. Now, I hope I have never failed in this way, but it's a failure to be weird online. And, and I, I don't know any other way to say that, and I, I won't go into too much detail here, but there are some therapists that will market in a very strange way online, and I consider that to be a sort of a failure. Number 86, it's a failure to have bad marketing or, or to not market at all. As a, when you're in private practice, you have to market, and it's a failure to, to market poorly. Number 87, it's a failure to not do pro bono or sliding fee scale. As therapists, it's ethically our responsibility to provide service to lower socioeconomic people. It's not ethical to only provide service to people that can afford your, your expensive fee. So it's important to do pro bono work or to do signing fee scale stuff or some, something that benefits people that are, are marginalized. Number 88, I have failed in the problem by having problems with my paperwork. It's important to have a good paperwork system. That makes sense, right? It's also a failure to, I'll just give this one its own, number 89, it's a failure to not give over your file. A recent case actually was was publicized in my state in which a therapist was asked by the client to release the client file to the client. The client had requested their file from the therapist, and the therapist delayed for a really long time. And that's a problem um, for a lot of obvious reasons. All right, number 90. You need to know your ethics. That's pretty obvious. Number 91. You can fail by not consulting with lawyers when necessary. 92, you can fail by not having backup when you're on vacation or if you pass away. Heaven forbid you pass away. But if you do, you need to make sure that someone can step into your file and figure out what's going on because uh, treatment must continue, right? Number 93, you can fail by charging too much or too little. I have seen some therapists charge what I would consider to be way too much. 
which is a little funny because it's like if people are willing to pay it, then, you know, whatever. But, but also I've seen people charge too little. And again, it just depends on what you want to do. But you deserve to be paid a good wage. You went back to school. You volunteered your time as an intern. You worked for free. You spent a lot of money. You're, you, have, you have high student loans. You deserve to be reimbursed. And it's, you know, it's a highly technical position, and there's not many of us. And so you deserve to be paid well. And so don't charge too little for your service. Number 94, starting groups and expecting people to show. I've never done this before, but this is a failure I've seen other therapists do, is they will say, I want to start a group. <laughs> I'm making fun of them, but but it's like they're saying, "Oh, you know what? Wouldn't it be great if I had a you know a group a group therapy situation where it felt really good and everyone came and you know I could charge more per hour because if there's six people in the group and everyone pays fifty bucks every session and it'll be great. I'll start a group and da 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 da. And they don't do any marketing and they just expect people to show up or they t- they they post the flyer in various places and, and just think people are going to show up and it never happens. And so I've seen that a lot. It's a failure. Number 95, annoying websites and annoying cards. <laughs> that sort of speaks for itself. 96, confusing disclosure statements. If you're a therapist, you know that you have to provide a disclosure statement, a informed consent form at the beginning of therapy. And if that form is confusing, that's a failure. Number 97, not explaining disclosures. It's important when you meet with clients for the first time that you explain the important things verbally because you can't expect them to understand it by reading it. Number 98, taking too much time to explain disclosures. So you can fail by not explaining, but you can also fail, I think, in my opinion, by taking way too much time in the first session to explain it. Clients come in, they want to start working on stuff. And so, you know, be quick when you're describing it. There's, there's ways of being very quick in describing it. Number 99, bring your dog to therapy. This drives me crazy. Now, if you're the sort of therapist that does this sort of work, that uses animals or pets in your therapy, and clients know that that's what you do and they come to you for that, or when you meet with your client, you give them the option and you really give them the option, meaning you don't say, hey, is it okay if my dog is with us? Most clients, if they don't want the dog in their in session, they're not going to say no because that, that's mean, right? So you really have to give them the option. So if you do that, great. But don't just show up to the office with your dog and have the dog in session with you and just think, well, it's, it's a dog. Doesn't everyone love dogs? And sure, people love dogs, but it's a when people come into therapy they expect a certain service and if the dog I, I, this all stems from a few stories but one story i remember someone telling me they went to therapy with their therapist and the therapist had brought their dog and the dog was jumping up on their lap and like licking them and biting them and barking them and the therapist was saying like oh Oh, you know, Fido, get down, stop bothering the client. And it wasn't really working. And the client was telling me later, he was saying, I didn't know what to say. You know, it's like I was, the dog was really bothering me. And I'm just thinking, my God, what a failure. That was number 100. Number 101, being an addict. <laughs> now, of course, no shame if you're, you're, if you have an addiction. But work on your addiction because it will drag you down. So make sure you work on that. Number 102, having too many clients in a row. This is another failure. 
when you have, and I've seen a lot of therapists do this, particularly in private practice, is they get a bunch of clients and they have maybe two days that they work during the week. And they, and I actually have totally failed in this way in the past when right now I'm primarily a professor and a, and a program administrator and I have a small private practice, so it's not an issue. But in the past when all I did was private practice, I, you know, I would see 25, 30 clients a week. And so, uh, inevitably there'd be a lot of clients in a row. And so sometimes I'd have like 10 sessions in a row and I wouldn't schedule any breaks or, or lunch or anything. And by the time you're at hour eight, you are not thinking straight. You, you, it's hard to listen to someone. It's hard to attend to someone. So don't have too many clients in a row. That's, that's a, that's a failure there. Number 103, not having a good attachment life. Again, no shame if you're having troubles in your personal life. But it's very important to cultivate good attachments with others, whether it's romantic partners or friends or family. It's important to cultivate that because we all need that. And if you don't have that, you will suffer as a person, one. And two, you're going to underperform as a therapist in all likelihood because you don't have enough compassion to give. And you might also start breaking boundaries. I believe research shows that when people have sex with their clients, it's because they were struggling often in their life with their own romantic life or their own attachments. And so you're putting yourself and your clients at risk when you don't have healthy attachments. Number 104, letting people get too high of a balance so when clients come in, sometimes they're therapy, and this is, I've, I'm totally guilty of this. I've absolutely failed in this way. When clients can't come to me, I don't have a really rigorous uh, fee situation. <laughs> See, I don't even have a language for it. I don't charge clients every single time they come in. I will send them a bill like once every month or two or something. Some clients pay every single time, but but with some clients when they're dealing with insurance or something, it takes a while for the claim to be processed and this kind of stuff. And if I were responsible, I would I would take payment every single session with the idea that if they overpay, I'll reimburse them at a later time. But I don't bother with that. I'm just like, ah, we'll wait. And so what ends up happening in rare situations is some clients will end up having a bill of thousands of dollars and then they don't pay. And this is bad for me, obviously, because what am I going to do when they don't pay? I could send them to collections, I guess, but you don't get all your feedback when you do that. And so that's a problem, and uh, I need to have better boundaries about that, and you can absolutely fail around that. Now, for myself, I just sort of – I don't really like dealing with money uh, in in a very rigorous way. And so for me, I'm just like, well, every once in a while I'll lose you know, a few thousand dollars because of my janky system. And I get the, and the benefit is I don't have to deal with a certain thing that I don't want to deal with all the time. Uh, it's very vague, but <laughs> that's a certain kind of failure that I guess I'm choosing to continue to do. Number 105, I have failed in the past by worrying if I move my office to another location, another location, all of my clients will desert me. There's this notion out there, and I've seen a lot of therapists believe this, is that if they move their offices, all their clients will say, oh, well, he moved across town. I don't want to see him anymore. And I have never seen this happen. In fact, 
the vast majority of the time, all of your clients will follow you. And the reason being is because they like you as a therapist and they don't like you because of location. I mean, that might have been one of the things they went to you to start with, but they stepped, they kept with you because they really love you as a person. Now, this doesn't mean that you should just flippantly move your office across town whenever you feel like it. But if you have to move, then do it. You know, don't worry so much about your practice. Number 106, I have failed in the past by not reporting ethical violations. When you see an ethical violation in a colleague, it's important to report that. We want to keep the industry uh, standard up, so to speak. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean you report every ethical violation to to the authorities, but it does mean that you should probably talk with the individual. We should just be very helpful to each other regarding keeping people on track, I guess, is the thing. All right, so that is the ethical section. Now let's go into the learning section in terms of professional development. 107, it is a failure not to read research, not to keep up on research. It's a failure to not know how to read research. That's 108. Number 109, it's a failure to be anti-science. This is just an opinion of mine, but I think it's a failure when some therapists are anti-empirical research. I think it's important to... I don't, I don't, I'm not saying you have to be like fully gung-ho about empirical research, but I think it is, to some extent, irresponsible to be anti-science. Number 110, it is a failure to not continue to learn. We need to always be learning, and I think it's a failure to, to, to not continue to learn. There have been times in my career that I have failed to continue to learn. There have been times when I have, I've just, I don't know, I just didn't have the energy, I think, or something. So, uh, you know, I think, it's, I think it's just important to continue to learn, continue to develop skills. Number 111, it's a failure to discount entire fields of psychotherapy because you heard one bad thing about it and you didn't like it or someone that you know said they didn't like that theory and therefore you don't like it. I've seen this happen a lot. I don't know if I've been guilty of this one, but I've seen this happen with some other people. Like they'll say, oh, you know, psychodynamic people, they're all idiots or, oh, you know, uh, Solution-focused people are idiots, or motivational interviewing people are idiots, or chemical dependency people are idiots, or psychiatrists are idiots, or something, or object relations is so out of style, or you know, cognitive behavioral therapy is too robotic. You know, there's just lots of judgments being thrown around in our industry, and I think that it's irresponsible because the reason why that field of psychotherapy exists is because it has merit. And there are lots of people that have found it useful. And so to just discount it flippantly because you didn't like one thing about it is, I think, a failure. 112, I think it is a failure to choose your continuing education badly. So you might be able to tell at this point that I'm really digging deep for other failures. The, the failures I said at the beginning were much more, I think, critical. So these are just little ideas. But I think it's it's a failure to not choose your continuing education courses wisely. Uh, choose, choose wisely because some continuing education courses are terrible. Number 113, I think you can fail by not, by not doing continuing education. Number 114, I think you can fail by thinking that old writing is irrelevant. I will come across people sometimes and we'll be talking about a study or something that was written 
and the citation will be like 1996. And someone, particularly a young person, will say like, well, it's 96. Can we really trust it? That was a long time ago. And I just think, wow, the field of psychotherapy has been around for 150 years or something or since Freud and Breuer in 1880s, so 130 years-ish. And there have been so many brilliant writers who have written about this profession, and we can benefit by all of it. And whenever I read stuff from Karen Horney from the 30s or, or uh, Rogers in the 50s, or I mean, this is a long-ass time ago, and they're writing about stuff that is totally relevant today. So to discount something that was written 20 years ago is just really silly. All right, so that's learning. Uh, just a little bit about countertransference. It is a failure, number 115, to deny your countertransference. Number 116, it is a failure to not be aware of your emotions. Now let's go into consultation. Number 117, it is a failure to not consult. We've talked about that earlier. Number 118, it is a failure to not tell your supervisor something if you have a supervisor. Number 119, it is a failure to not change supervisors when necessary. There are some supervisory relationships that are not healthy, that are just not a good fit. And so you, you have a right to at least have a discussion about changing supervisors. All right, that's consultation. Now let's just go into a general category I'm calling other therapists. Number, this is the last category. Number 120, it is a failure to talk crap about other therapists. I, am, I have certainly been guilty of this one. I, I've seen this happen when, when people talk with us about their previous therapeutic experiences. Like, it's like someone comes to me and, and they're saying, oh, you know what? After a few sessions, I really like you. You're much better than my last therapist. My last therapist, all she wanted to do was talk about the past. And in your head, you start thinking, oh, that therapist must have been an idiot. What's, what was wrong with that therapist? That therapist was a, was a dumbass. But the thing to remember is you're hearing an account through one person. And to keep in mind, to give the person the benefit of the doubt. It's just an important thing. The reason why this is sensitive to me, I guess, is because sometimes I worry about what my clients say to other therapists or other people. Because if, if they were to talk about the therapy they might describe it in a way that might seem as though I'm a terrible therapist. And so I just think it's important to give people the benefit of the doubt. Now, are there terrible therapists out there? Absolutely. But, you know, we just need to be balanced in that way. Number 121, and the similar thing, don't assume that clients' accounts of past therapists are accurate. It's, it's not necessarily true. Number 122, and this is something that I hope I've never done, but has been done to me, is therapists can fail by being annoying and judging other therapists for not doing something. Like I've talked about this on the podcast before, where every now and then, particularly in the past, I would run into other therapists. We would be consulting about a case and the therapist would say, oh, well, you know, there's a book I read that relates to our client. Have you read it? It's called blah, blah, blah. And I would say, oh, no, I haven't read it. And the other therapist would say, oh, well, you really should read it <laughs> with this passive aggressive statement of like, you're a dumbass for not reading this book. And I'm not exaggerating. I'm not, I'm not making this up. There, there are therapists that will say that in a very pointed way, in a judgmental way. And 
it would just drive me crazy. It would ha- it, it happened enough that it's a thing in my memory. And that's a failure, so don't do that. <laughs> Number 123, being negative at an agency. This is a massive failure. When you're a therapist or when you're a worker, a staff person at an agency and you're working with a bunch of other people, it is a failure to be super negative all the time. I've worked in agencies where everyone was super negative and I've worked at agencies where everyone was not super negative. And there's a vast difference between what those different workplaces feel like to everybody. You know, we, we work in a stressful environment. It's, it's a stressful thing. Some clients are extremely stressful. And so it breeds negativity and it breeds anxiety and you start to look for coping mechanisms. And one of the ways that people will do it is to just really be negative about their clients, be negative about their work. And what it does is it just creates a culture of negativity and it brings you and everyone else down. And so stop it, people, stop it. Number 124, this is the final failure. And I've absolutely failed in this way and I try to rectify this all the time, is to not help novice therapists. It's a failure to not reach out to novice therapists and help them out. When people enter this industry, they are giving up a lot. These are privileged people oftentimes. They're educated. They have to spend a lot of money to go back to school. They could do anything. They could they could work at Microsoft. They could work at Boeing. They could work at a startup and work in tech or whatever. There's, they have a lot of choices, but they choose to become a therapist. And it's a noble profession. They are trying to help people. They are getting into the thick of it. They're getting on the front lines. They're, they're, they're very caring people. And so when new therapists enter the field and they're a bundle of insecurity, it's important for more experienced therapists to help them out in ways that we can, to have compassion, to normalize for them, and to reach out to them because some of them might not feel that they can reach out. They, they might feel really so insecure that they don't feel like they're worthy of any help. And so I think we really need to help them. And that's one of the gratifying things about being chair of the Couple and Family Therapy Program at Antioch is because almost every day I get to do just that. I get to help young therapists or novice therapists. I get to help them to begin their career making a difference in this world. It's extremely gratifying. And it provides a tremendous amount of meaning for me. And to some extent, I feel like a little moral victory to some extent, that I consider it a moral thing to try to make the world a better place. And if I can do my small little part to help people to help the world become a better place, then I'm, I'm quite gratified by that. Anyway, all right. Well, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle Thank you so much for joining me on this extremely long journey on 124 of my failures as a therapist. Let me know what you think of them. Let me know what you think of them. Email me. I read every email. You know that. All right, that does it for this episode. Thanks for joining me. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really do.